discussing the um, setup for this retreat, so we were thinking it's quite a, a large crowd and the length of time is fairly short. So um, rather than trying to have interviews, uh, group interviews even, uh, we thought that um, instead we'd aim to have uh, some uh, questions and answer Dhamma dialogue sessions uh, each day. So. Um, uh, but also recognizing that um, some people might prefer to uh, to be quiet. Uh, so what we uh, thought, maybe for this last period of the afternoon, um, those who'd like to stay for a time for questions and answers and uh, for things that have come up in the the, uh, the retreat so far, uh, you're very um, welcome to, to stay and to uh, have some conversation with Joseph and myself and others who'd like to do walking meditation for the next uh, 40 minutes or so, then uh, please feel welcome to do that. And then we can gather back together at 5 o'clock and then close the afternoon with a dedication of merit. Does that seem agreeable? So if uh, anybody would like to stay, please stay. Those who'd like to go and do some walking, please, uh, please head out if you wish. No pressure either way. This is fine. Yeah, it's easier. It's easier to pass this. Okay. Well, it seems everyone's uh, <laughs> made their choices. So. Uh, Please feel free to um, raise any particular questions or things that have come up in terms of what uh, Joseph uh, Pabaka or I have said so far, um, or things that have, um, have come up in your practice or that you've uh, motivated you to come <coughs> on this retreat in the first place. So please uh, speak freely and uh, ask whatever you would like. I could say don't be shy, but that doesn't usually have a much of an impact. <laughs> yes, Sash. I did not hear the bell at the end of her time. Mm -hmm. It would be very good to have a rough idea of the time when we're supposed to be back, just in case we somebody else would be stupid with me around the Okay, we'll, we will uh, improve them. Thank you for that. I noticed there was about a 20-minute period of drift. And the, the first people came back from walking meditation to the last, so I realized, aha, we need to um, tighten up the methodology. <laughs> so the, generally the, the walking periods and the sitting periods will both be 45 minutes long. So say if... Uh, we're going out to walk at 2.45, then the bell would be ringing to bring people back at 3.30. Any other practice-related questions? Ajahn Bodhipala is asking, how do, you, how do we use the skeleton? Well, because they have these skeletons here. Um, I'm tempted to say, you're using it already, Ajahn. 
So, but I'll refrain from being cheeky like that. Um, well, I, as I was uh, saying last night um, for myself, the uh, that uh, the very fact that we uh, we have these um, uh, skeletons outside, we have a, in a way a, a, um, a sort of um, archetypal image of a skeleton representing death um, and something other, that's something different, almost like the skeleton is a different species. And as we were were talking last night about you know, Ajahn Chah's way of of, uh, of addressing that, or talking to to people about how isn't it strange? You know, you you come and you see a skeleton, and you think, oh dear. And it's frightening, but yet we live with one all the time. So part of, of that, um, in a sense, is to uh, uh, to help normalize uh, and um, uh, to, uh, in, a, uh, in a sense, change our way of, of seeing who and what we are. Because we tend to relate to ourselves as human beings by what's on the surface. You know, by how old we are, how young we are, what our gender is. Now, probably uh, there's a, probably a couple of anatomists here who could figure out which is a female skeleton, which is a male skeleton. Well, we know this is a plastic one, but, <laughs> but most of us wouldn't say, "Oh, yeah, well, that's a." Hmm? She's very tall. <laughs> yes, well, we, we we're not sure, but uh, when we look at each other around here, we say, "Oh, these are the women; these are the men." We identify each other very easily. And categorize each other, um, uh, and so that by by looking at the 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 skeleton and recognizing, oh yeah, that's the that's what I have inside this body. This is what creates the framework for this body. Um, that there is this whole inner dimension of our of our life of our of our being that that we're missing. I mean, when we look around the room, we don't think, wow, sixty sixty spleens. <laughs> Yeah, 120 lungs. Yeah. Yeah. How many yards of intestines are uh, here? I'll try not to get too gruesome. A few doctors could probably figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, we, we don't see each other. We, we see Pabakra, we see Santamana, we see Bodhipala, we see uh, uh, Valerie, you know, see Rory and uh, Stephen. You know, we, we identify with our names, our personalities, our genders. Um, we look at these other characters with, with just the bones and no flesh, and we go, man, woman, old, young, but tall. <laughs> 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 yeah. But uh, the, the, those uh, familiar and automatic characterizations are, are shifted. So that uh, reflecting on the, the, the bones and recognizing, oh yeah, that's, why do I identify with what's on the surface? so much and, and why don't I look at sort of who and what I am just in terms of what's on the inside or, or why does the, the surface level get so much attention and, and is, uh, seems to be so important and crucial yeah. and so that in a way this is, uh, I like to think of it as normalizing or, or in a sense making our, our view or understanding ourselves more realistic and uh, one of the reflections that the, the Buddha has on the in the uh, Satipatthana Sutta, the, the foundations of mindfulness, is on the four elements. Just seeing our body uh, as uh, made up of the four elements, uh, earth, water, fire, and, and uh, wind. That uh, the, uh, These elements of solidity, fluidity, uh, heat, and uh, uh, temperature, and the life force, and, uh, and vibration. That's what these four elements represent. And so to 
to say see these these skeletons where we're looking at as the earth element. This is earth element. <laughs> and I, when we're doing walking meditation, I like to to uh, investigate or get the the feeling of the bones and the, the skeleton, the body moving, the articulation of the body moving, uh, and uh, that the very earthiness of our of our bones and uh, the earth that we're walking on, the feeling of gravity pulling the the body and the earth together, and so that. The, the Buddha's reflection on the four elements is just to say, uh, and as he's teaching his own son, Rahula, in one particular discourse, he says, uh, how, you know, Rahula, be like the earth, be like fire, be like wind, be like water. Um, that, you know, see yourself in those terms, just and be in that way. And then that if you recognize uh, yourself in that way, then you'll be uh, at ease just as the, the, the four elements are. You'll be at ease with whatever the world throws at you. you know, that's the, the, the air is indifferent to you know, what, where, where it blows or what, what it carries. It's at ease, it's equanimous. Uh, yeah, the, the earth does not uh, discriminate about what sits upon it. <laughs> it just, uh, it's just uh, uh, in, it's a, uh, at ease, it's equanimous, it's undisturbed by what happens to it. So when we change the view, or we, we see oh, this, this body is just made up of the four elements, the solid element, the liquid element, the fire element, the air element, then it really shifts our view somewhat. Rather than thinking male, female, old, young, thin, fat, doesn't really, it's just, you know, <laughs> fat, earth, thin, earth, <laughs> yeah, heavy air, light air, yeah, female, uh, female uh, water, male water, doesn't have any kind of meaning, does it? So when we uh, we recognize that, that uh, or we use that sense of a shift of, of view, we see that oh yeah, this is, this body is just earth element, fire element, water element, air element. Then it helps to break through self-view. That the, the the what is called sakaya ditti, or the the view of the real person that I am this body, I am this personality. And that, that is the, the, what's called the first of the ten fetters, the first of the obstructions to enlightenment, is that, that uh, you know, ego identification with the body. So when we reflect upon these, uh, the, the skeletons and the, the, the skulls and things here, what we're doing is we're trying to, to move against that, that uh, illusion of I am the body, I am the personality, that's all and everything that I am. And that by shifting that, shaking that up, by recognizing that, then we're able to, to break through that, that limiting uh, perception. Sandra, your name? 
Julie. Julie, okay. Julie. Judith, sorry. Um, Judith brought up a good point. I've already heard her, but it, she was saying, this, viewing the skeleton and seeing the earth element in the skeleton, and then thinking of the liquid or water and realizing the blood flowing through the body, and then feeling kind of the, the wind of the air as it moves not only around us, but through us as we breathe. We breathe in wind elements when we hear the kind of the digestion going on. You know, doctor will put the stethoscope on our tummies and hear all the, oh, oh, you know, and that means that everything's working fine. And then the heat, of course, we're always noticing uh, either we're either too hot or too cold. Rarely are we just right. And that, I think, is, a, is, a, is, a, is an excellent example of how you and I can internalize this, this practice. Because initially, we're kind of up here. We're in a, a certain theory. There's no one here with that would disagree that that there is this and that and that and that and that and that and, that and, that and, that and all the rest of them. That this is, these are skeletons sitting here. But because our attachment, our uh, uh, our deeply deeply rooted identification and attachment to this. We are so kind of blinded by what this is. And so this, this practice that we're doing is to help us to change that view. So we're going, it's like we're swimming upstream, aren't we? It's not, we're going, not going downstream. We don't kind of go, we're not going with the current. It's like we don't just jump on a surfboard and surf the wave of, of death or surf the wave of all of the, the things that are unattractive or unpleasant if we just open the skin, just the skin deep and below what's inside of this body. So well, this is where the effort comes in that one needs to make that effort to actually kind of peel back, literally peel back the skin and look, but also peel back the layers of attachment. So as we look around, like Ajahn was saying, we have the identity, and if we know the identity, you know, I know Tony, don't know the next name, next name, Catherine, no, no, Dave, uh, Richard, and as I go on, so I know a name, I don't know a name, but the name is associated with a shape, with a form that is created and remembered within this consciousness and this kind of sanya, I remember it. But then if I go along and say Tony, and I say, oh, Tony, yes, Tony's this shape, that shape, he's male. Then I start to kind of unpack Tony. And, you know, I open his suitcase. And, you know, what do I find in Tony's suitcase? I same, find the same thing I find in Catherine's suitcase, you know, the internal parts of the body. So now if we took Tony, we took Catherine, we took Dave, we took Richard, and a few others, and we were able to unpack them fairly neatly without it being too messy. And then we mixed them all together in a big pile up front here. Wow, which, which of those is Tony's heart? And, oh, those are big lungs. Those must be Tony's. And <laughs> so in other words, we would, we, would hi we would have very deeply kind of unpacked and and probed, almost like, uh, you know, stabbed into the attachment and, and a certain detachment could set in. I may be a little easier example that's not quite so um, 
um, the word gross, but I think there's a, a better word, but that's, uh, you know, repulsive. Indelicate, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but they, you know, that for, for monks and nuns, when they go forth, they get the, the first meditation objects they get is, is uh, you know, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin. So here's head hair. And all of us except monastics uh, are attached to our hair. So you could ask Ajahn Amaro, he's been a monk for over 30 years now. Well, over 30 years, could ask him, Ajahn, have you ever had a bad hair day? <laughs> and I'm sure he would say no, zero. <laughs> then we also ask, well, how many good hair days have you had? And zero. zero. <laughs> <laughs> so hair no longer becomes an issue. But for the average person, you and I, we, we attach to the hair. So I like my hair, I don't like my hair. I like it today, I don't like it today. I had haircut just before. It's just getting the length now. Or, so all those years I was a monk, you know, now I'm quite, you can ask this lovely woman over here how attached I've been, how neurotic I've been about my hair. And she says, well, honey, I've seen you without your hair. So if you want to shave it, that's fine. You know, I don't have a problem with that. But it's when we detach it from the body. So again, if we put a pile of hair up here, everybody cut off some of the hair. First of all, even if it's our loved one, our wife, you know, our, our partner, it's like, well, do we want to take it home? And because it's mixed with the other hair, we're not very attached. Say so we all cut our fingernails and our toenails, and we have a big you know, a pot full of toenails and fingernails. Now if they're painted and, on and attached to the body, it's, oh, you have pretty red toenails or fingernails and we like them but then if it's cut off then all of a sudden it's like you know or a hair in our soup or a hair in our plate or, or a hair in our tea heaven forbid you know a toenail in our soup or in our salad <laughs> <laughs> and then teeth and these are things that we think about it as I'm describing this it's quite it, it's quite hilarious it's quite humorous but as we look at each other, other than our clothes, you know, with respect, we ro go around in clothes, go around naked, everybody kind of gets a little weirded about running around naked. So we put clothes on to kind of, with mod for modesty and protection in that. But when we look past the clothes, the first thing we see, whether we have clothes on or not, is skin, hair, nails, teeth. And so then the next thing is, is skin. And so that's the surface. So we attach the skin. And, and these days, of course, I'm sure it's just as bad here that everybody's into white teeth. You know, so white is good. So you, know, you can get your teeth whitened. You get toothpaste that have whitener in it. You, know, you can get, you know, probably paint them white. You go to the dentist and spend you know, thousands of pounds getting your teeth whitened. And all these things are about beautification of what you and I identify with. So the challenge is that going against the stream and to uproot that attachment. And that does not come easy. Why? Because that's not what we've been trained. That's not what our conditioning is. So the, 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 the effort that you and I bring forth is to start unpacking and looking more closely. Now my eye, as, as a male, and when I was a young male, and even when I was a monk, the eye would want to go to that which is attractive. You know, I would naturally go to something attractive. Okay, so young man, young woman, or maybe young man, young man. Doesn't matter that what one is attracted to. But he wouldn't usually go to an older woman or an old man 
or somebody that didn't have the kind of the features that found, you found attractive. So all of our attention and our conditioning is to gravitate towards that which we find attractive. But if one starts, steps back and says, all right, let me take a second look at this and look and say, wow, in the attractive, there is the unattractive. You know, in that which is beautiful, there is the unbeautiful. And that's the, the practice, so that we start to change the point of reference. But that changing is where the challenge and the effort is. Everything that you and I have in society, and now I know this very well, having spent 20, 21 years as a non-monk, that everything that bombards the senses in a daily way are saying, you know, be this, have this. They're not saying, did you realize that behind your skin and your eyeballs there's eye sockets? Isn't that weird? <laughs> you know, you know <laughs> or, you know, if you take your teeth out, or kind of look like this, and you look like an old person. You know, they don't, they don't give you these images. And, and they give us images of, of beauty and how to beautify and clarify and whiten and enlighten, and, you know, all of that, and not the real enlighten, and just kind of um, raise up. It's elevate, like, like we elevate the Buddha. We, the monks get elevated. But we don't do that in society. We elevate the young, the beautiful, the attractive, that which smells good, tastes good, feels good, looks good, all of those things. So the, the practice is very much for us to begin to turn away from that or to say, to feel that attraction and then like, oh, then in the young person, there's the old person. And in the older person, there was the younger person. And we see, we begin to see both. We begin to, begin to see the, the more complete picture. And that's where the its skeleton become internalized. So my walking meditation, I was kind of wrestling with this. And I said, Joseph, you know, let's really kind of work on this. This is what we're, we're trying to teach. And I, I want to deepen my practice around this a, as well. So as I was walking, I was really stopped for quite some time, closed my eyes. I knew it was fairly safe not to fall asleep standing up, and as far as I know, I didn't. I didn't wake up bruised or anything. So I really started to internalize this skeleton. Not my skeleton. It's not my skeleton. It's a skeleton. It's this skeleton. It's this finger, this thumb, this nail, this hair. So all of those terms that we use, oh, that's Joseph's hair. Oh, Joseph, it's not bad hair. It's a little curly, a little wavy, you know, it's kind of cool. I don't like it. I wish he'd shave it. I liked it better when it was shaved, whatever. So that we change and you know, we really shift that. So shifting that I'm walking and feeling, you know, whatever I identify myself as, as, as Joseph, as a body, as young, old, hurting knees, and whatever, I start to feel the actual structure. And that takes effort on my part to really start to feel that, oh, wow, there, there is a skeleton here. I have that. I can feel it. You can feel it. There's the ribs, the bones, feel it. So, so be creative in your practice. Don't be afraid to go in front of a mirror and look, but then to start look past, like you'd look at your eyes, and then you realize in the eyes, there's eye sockets. You go, oh, you know, like Ajahn said, they come in and see there's, you know, skeletons. It's just taking the things away that we're familiar with. You know, if, 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 if it was all skeletons, 
and then we filled in the pieces, everybody would, you know, be weirded out about all the pieces filled in because we normally saw skeletons. So it's that's what we, what that which we were conditioned to. That's what we want to, what we attach to. And so this is this this effort. I think is the most important part because we are definitely going against the flow, and that's the conditioning. Other than if you've spent time in a monastery, and even if you ha even let, let me rephrase that like. Everything in monastic life encourages us to do that, but it doesn't in society. So us as lay folks living in everyday world and having those responsibilities requires even more effort. And that's why we love to come here. Why? Because it helps us. It, it lifts up the heart and it helps us to, to be inspired to try to look more closely. But Ajahn can't practice for me. I can't practice for Ajahn. I never could. I never will. And, and that's, that's impossible. But he can uplift me, and I hope that my life and how I've lived since I left, you know, uplifts him. Because I haven't become, you know, drop dead drunk or, you know, anything particularly bad. So I like to think that I've lived a life that's, you know, fairly good. Sadhu <laughs> Bhante. So far, so good. Well, uh, on, on this uh, score, uh, when people would speak to Ajahn Chah about this, he'd say, well, how, you know, how do you recognize an enlightened being? He'd say, it takes one to know one. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> but that, that's maybe a, a bit of a, a flippant response. But also the, the Buddha said in a similar vein that uh, you, uh, you have to live with somebody closely for a long period of time in order to... Um, <laughs> really feel out and to, to sense their, their level of, of realization. So um, I, my, my own experience is I've certainly um, been with and, and met people who have you know, completely dropped self-view and, and you know, all other defilements. So I would, if you can take it on trust from me that it is possible. I've certainly seen that. And it is uh, it's remarkable uh, because it's also when someone lets go of self-view, it's not like they're, they're kind of spaced out or they're, you know, in, they become un unable to look after themselves. Like, this body is not self. <laughs> <laughs> and you just sort of expect someone to come along and feed it. Um, you know, do, do your breathing for you or something. I, it, it's not that way at all. But um, someone like, uh, like Ajahn Chah, to use him as an example, he was... Yeah, both one who had completely let go of self-view and, and self-identification, but he was a heck of a personality. <laughs> but that personality functioned without any kind of um, clinging. And so uh, uh, that dropping of, of uh, identification with the body, with the personality, the, the, uh, the self uh, 
illusion is also, uh, in a way, it's letting go of the clutter and not uh, not having the uh, the habits of, of fear and desire, uh, aversion and uh, opinion, cluttering up the, the picture, so that the 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 uh, in a way the heart can function freely. And so also Ajahn Chah was an intensely practical person. He was also very attuned to uh, to worldly activities, building projects. <laughs> you know, he could read personalities, read other people, read situations very, very well. Um, and it was, uh, in, well, as one could see, uh, uh, it was because of him having no biases um, and being able to feel out the situation and and recognize his own uh, his own character and, and character traits, and but not taking them uh, as a as a burden. Like like today, somebody um, brought some sticky rice for for Joseph, as, since he was uh, trained all those years in the northeast of Thailand, <laughs> and um, you know the uh, the standard, uh, you know the the standard for for. Um, the daily food, the, the, the meal would be uh, that you make a, a ball of sticky rice that's as big as your hands. Like. That's, that's how you, that's the right amount. So, and that would be something that Ajahn Chah would, would always teach that monks and nuns, okay, if you want to choose how much food you should have, that's how big your ball of rice should be. And it's sticky rice, so it sticks together. So a big guy, <laughs> like Joseph, would have a big ball. But then Ajahn Chah say, said, you know, when he was younger, you know, if you've got, the, got some muscles in your phalanges, then you can really pack the rice tight. <laughs> so you can actually get like an extra 20% in <laughs> if, you, if you really pack it. And uh, Ajahn Pasano, who was the co-abbot with me in, in uh, the monastery in America, he was telling this very poignant little story one time in Ajahn Chah's later years, they were down at some little branch monastery for a ceremony, and, and Ajahn Chah was making up his ball of rice, and he said, yeah, Pasno, you know, haven't got the juice anymore. I used to be able to pack it really tight, you know. <laughs> now I can't, you know, I have to take less rice because I can't pack my, my, my ball quite so tightly as I used to. So he was able to look at his own sort of habits of maneuvering to get more food <laughs> as, a, as a younger monk and could... Uh, Address that, speak of that, and, and just be totally at ease with that. Not being uh, uh, identified with it in any way that's, uh, that's burdensome. Like, yeah, that's how we are. <laughs> and so, um, you know, there's no kind of little gadget, a sort of barometer meter, that you can uh, you know, measure someone's spiritual state with. But uh, it's more to do with uh, being uh, close to people, being able to, to see how they function. And also not just being um, uh, taken in by, by superficialities because uh, just the, Thailand is the country I have most experience with and some of the, the, the people who are regarded as sort of great enlightened beings have very, very different modes of operating. So Ajahn Mahabur, who just passed away uh, last year, he was very uh, grumpy. So he could come across being very fierce and, and off-putting. Ajahn Chah was, could be very fierce, but also could be like everyone's favorite uncle. Yeah, could be extremely witty and jovial. Ajahn Tate was like a very, very uh, gracious and regal. Uh, and they were all mates with each other. They all respected each other. Very, very different personalities. And to tell another little story, when uh, George Sharp, uh, who was the um, 
chairman of the English Sangha Trust that had the little vihara in London, in Hampstead, back in the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s. George went over to Thailand to invite Ajahn Mahabur to come and, and give talks in London. And so he'd make this big journey to go over there and to see if the, you know, the great master would, would uh, come to London. So he went there and uh, one of the, the monks, Ajahn Paniwada, had previously lived in that vihara in London, so he was translating and liaising for him. So George went to, to see uh, Ajahn Mahabur and said, please, uh, Venerable Sir, would you be kind enough to come to London and give teachings you know, next year? We'd be very happy and grateful if you could do this. And Ajahn Mahabur was really rude to him <laughs> and uh, kind of <coughs> was uh, very uh, off-putting and dismissive. And, and a couple of times George went to, went to speak with him. He had the same kind of manner and uh, was very sort of gruff and, and uh, impolite and... Uh, and Ajahn Panyuada was, was struggling to try and translate it into English without too much coarse language. And, <laughs> and so George is a, a very forthright person. He's an uh, unusually uh, uh, expressive Englishman. <laughs> so he's, he's, very, uh, he's uh, not given to um, holding back, shall we say. So after a couple of days of this, he said, um, could you ask Tanajan um, why he's being so rude to me? He says, you know, I've come all the way from England in order to invite him to come to London. You know, I would have thought he could at least be kind of reasonably polite <laughs> or just uh, uh, have, a, have a, a sort of welcoming quality. And, and, uh, but yeah, he's been coarse and gruff and unfriendly and dismissive and disrespectful. So I'm just curious as to, you know, why, why I've, have I done something wrong that he's being so horrible to me? So then... Uh, Ajahn Panyawada translated that, and Ajahn Mahabur cracked up and said, Oh, <laughs> sorry, no, don't, don't, you, shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't be, f- be taken in by that. That's just my personality. I'm very, <laughs> I'm very glad you're here. I feel very honored that you've come all this way. <laughs> it's just I'm a coarse bloke. You know? I'm a rough country bloke. You know, I was a boxer before I was a, a monk. So, yeah, I'm a rough guy. Uh, you know, so sorry if I've been so horrible to you. I, I didn't mean that at all. You know. Well, he g- part of him did, but also it's just so normal for him. There was no kind of uh, um, negative feeling in his heart, but that's just the w- way he would come across. So, um, I mean, he's maybe a little bit of an extreme case. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And uh, so when, when, he, when George explained what he was feeling, he said, oh, terribly sorry. <laughs> I didn't realize I would come across like that. I don't mean to be horrible. That's just how I say good morning, you know. Anything for you? So maybe one more. One more question, yeah. Oh well, like the, the Buddha said, uh, uh, you have to live with someone. Oh yeah, the the uh, the question was, uh, isn't it possible for an enlightened being to know the, uh, whether somebody else is enlightened? Well, the, the Buddha's own comment on it was, you have to live with someone, you have to live close to someone for an extended period of time, in order to to know their their state of enlightenment. And there's a famous incident where um, even where 
the Buddha comes to um, to visit you know, three monks in the Parilayaka forest, uh, the Anuruddha and Kimbila and uh, and uh, Bhagu, and um, and so he says, "Well, how are you doing, living here together in the forest? You know, how are you how are you getting along?" and and um, uh, and then uh, they uh, they start to talk to him and. Um, and uh, one of them uh, says, "Well, I'm, you know, I'm very happy and practice is going very well." In the, and um, yeah, I have to to tell you that uh, yeah, I've uh, you know, I've realized enlightenment. And uh, and the Buddha said, "Well, I knew that actually before you you came." And, and the others have to have the others here have also realized full enlightenment. He said, "Oh, have they really?" <laughs> <laughs> and they they were all living together. They all become arahants, but they didn't realize it until the Buddha came along and said, "Oh, yeah, actually, you've all." Yeah, you've all completed the path, and so they didn't. They realized it individually, but they hadn't realized it of each other. So that uh, even living closely, good friends, that uh, they hadn't uh, been aware. So unless, yeah, as the the teachings talk about it, unless someone has developed the kind of psychic powers, then they wouldn't necessarily know that somebody else is is fully enlightened. But that doesn't have to be a real concern for this retreat, I think. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. And as we close, I, I would just like to to uh, to ask for uh, any kind of input to us, feedback to us of kind of so far how are we doing? Not like you know you're enjoying our talks or anything, but um, are we kind of beginning to encompass what maybe somewhat what you expected? Are we do we seem to be on track? I mean, what's the general feeling if anybody's uh, kind of willing to, to, to speak up? Because uh, this is not our retreat. I mean, it's our retreat in you and ours, where it's not ours that we're, you know, we have a, a big agenda. So we want to be, uh, certainly want to be helpful and make it useful. Because I was reading through the registration forms, and, and most people were, you know, fairly simple in what they hope to get is to, Deepen their practice to you know learn more about uh, how to do contemplate uh, death or death meditation. Some people uh, are, are, are grieving, have had um, some deaths in their family. So there was quite a variety of what is uh, what people are here for. So um, anybody care to, to speak to that?
the pra practical applications, like that's an example, you know, now maybe when you're walking, you see the skeleton. Some more of the practical thing would take away. Uh, Catherine was just saying that she would like to see a bit more. Maybe we should start the roving mic so at least people can, and then they're asking their own question rather than us. So we'll, we'll get the second mic going here. But basically she was saying that um, wanted to uh, really hear more on the, the, the practical application of, of these uh, teachings on death and uh, on dying and on death and how to apply them in one's daily life. So like Sash just gave the example of founding, when I was talking about the skeleton and walking was helpful. So that's like a practical example. And I think it certainly is our intention. Um, we kind of are getting a pulse, so we didn't want to launch into, you know, that we're all, um, you know, a bunch of corpses walking, zombies walking around here. And, 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 and so I certainly have a lot of, uh, um, uh, experience and kind of uh, graphic type experiences, but it's not the, you know, it's not the point to just kind of like shock you. You know, like you can go watch movies or go on YouTube and see a lot of shocking things. So, but uh, that's certainly that I think that's the direction we're wanting to go is to to make this palatable, make it uh, uh, practical for everybody, so that you take some of these things away. So it certainly is our intention. Ajahn had anything to add to that? Just to say that um, the the Buddha was um, uh, not a uh, an idealist, but he was uh, a pragmatist, and so the the, the point of the teachings and, and the practice is to uh, f f uh, develop ways that we can change our lives for the better. So that uh, I always think uh, like to think of the Dhamma teachings as more of a toolkit uh, and uh, how to um, uh, descriptions. Uh, for ways that we can uh, understand our life and, and, and liberate the heart, really find a quality of fulfillment of our potential of human beings. So hopefully that uh, we'll be able to, during the, the course of these few days, help uh, pass out the tools and, uh, and uh, give useful instruction in how that all works. <laughs>